covenant with my eyes, and should I have looked upon a virgin? And what is the portion from God on high, and the inheritance from the Almighty of the heavens? Is there not curtailment of iniquity, and confounding for those who plot together and scheme iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Job 31, 1-4 we have already seen before how Job protested that he was not such as his friends wished to make him believe, for they had the opinion that he was reproved by God. He has then declared that he had lived in holiness and in perfection. He returns again to this proposition, and not without cause, for it seemed to him a grievous temptation that he was thought to be a hypocrite, although he had walked in uprightness of heart and in simplicity before God. And besides, he also has no regard for his reputation, nor what would be thought of him, for God knew him. It is true that he should not find it strange that he was afflicted by the hand of God, although he had walked as we here see, yet it was good that he knew the end and the cause for which God had thus visited him. Now we shall see this more fully in the conclusion of the chapter. Now let us look at what is herein contained. It is that Job wishes to declare that he has served God faithfully, and now that he endures evil so grievous and so excessive that it is not for the offenses that he had committed, but that there is some other hidden reason that God knew, and which men could neither perceive nor judge. In the first place, he gives testimony of his integrity when he says that he has made a covenant with his eyes not to look unchastely upon a living daughter. Now it is a sign of great perfection, and as it were angelic in a man, if he can protest that he has never invited evil, for it surely is possible for a man to have some hidden and fleeting temptation, and yet not consent to it, even reject all that and hate it. In fact, it would be a great virtue when a man could have all his senses so wholesome and exempt from all corruption that he could never be deceived. But Job here goes further, and to better comprehend this, let us know that there are three degrees of vice in the formation of sin, I say, even though there may not be actual sin. James uses the figure of a child when he speaks of sin, for he says, chapter 1, 14 and 15, that concupiscence conceived, and that it gave birth to sin, and sin is completed when one comes to the act, when the thing is executed. Now I say, although there may not be an outward act, there are three degrees in a vice. The first is a fleeting imagination that a man conceives when he looks at something. It will come to him in fantasy here or there, or else, though he sees nothing, his mind is so adept at evil that he will be carried away here and there, and many fantasies will come into his brain. Now, it is certain that this is vicious, but it is not imputed to us as sin. Now, there is a second degree. It is that, after having conceived a fantasy, we are somehow titillated, and we feel that our will is drawn there. And though there may be neither consent nor agreement, yet there is within us some point from which to appeal to us. Now, that is a bad sin, and which is, as it were, conceived. Then there is consent, when our will has ceased, and it would not stop us from doing evil if the occasion for it presented itself. 
Then there is the third degree, and then the sin is formed in us, although the act may not be outward. And this is very worthy to be noted. For although the thing could seem difficult to us, nevertheless, there is no one, either man or woman, who would not understand what I have just said, and who would not experience it in himself every day. For example, there will come to us in fantasy when we are afflicted the question, Does God think of us? There is no one who could maintain that he does not conceive such imaginings, for our nature is so corrupt and inclined to evil that it is impossible that we should not have such apprehensions. Now it is surely already a vice when it will come before us, though we may repulse it, though we may think, How now, I detest this. It is a blasphemy to think that God does not pity those who call upon Him, that He does not wish to help those who seek Him. It is as much as if we wish to deny that He any longer governs the world. When, then, such things come into our brain, it is a vice, and we ought to conclude, Alas, Lord, what poor creatures, and how full of vanity we are, when we can conceive such monstrous things. There is the second, it is that when evil will press us, and sorrow will be multiplied further, we come to these murmurings. Alas, and if God thought of me, would I be thus languishing? Would he have no concern to aid me? He does not do it. He hides. It seems, then, that I am abandoned by him. When we would dispute so in ourselves, in this apprehension about whether God cares for us or not, then we must understand what is declared toward us, and we must receive his promises and be founded upon them by saying, No, whatever may happen, yet I shall have confidence in my God, and I shall have my refuge in him. But although we may finally have this assurance and constancy, yet if before coming to it we are mixed up in perplexity, this is a vice which is greater than the first, and already we are guilty before God both of doubt and of unbelief, since we have power to receive such a wicked temptation. Now there is in the third degree, when we are entirely cast down, and we know how to say nothing except, Oh, behold, evil has conquered, and God has procrastinated too long in extending his hand to me. I see myself here as it were desperate. When we are so overwhelmed that we can no longer call upon God, and we do not relish his promises to bear us up and to make us rejoice, that is the third degree of evil. As if after an infant will be formed, it only remains further to give it birth. So nothing more is here necessary except that the outward act should come. We come now to the proposition of Job. I have made, he says, an agreement or covenant with my eyes. We have said that is a sign of a great perfection. And why? For if a man can restrict his sight, that he may conceive nothing by looking at this and that which might draw him into evil, and if he shows that he has true chastity and honesty in himself, one must say that he is almost as pure of all corruptions as an angel. Now Job does not protest this in vain, 
Let us recognize, then, that he was preserved in this world like an angel of God. It is true that by nature he was not such, and also when he says that he has made a covenant, it is after he has profited by the fear of God in such a way that he had put underfoot his evil cupidities and gained his victory over his heart, that he is able to hold himself in check and locked in by saying, I shall covet no evil by desiring and wishing it. I shall have no vein in me which may tend to offend God, but I shall here be restrained both in my eyes and in my mouth and in my ears. That, then, is how Job had made this covenant. It is not that he should be in such perfection in his nature. He was man subject to passions like us, and no doubt he had many temptations in his life, but he walked in such a way that he was accustomed in the fear of God until he did not conceive of evil desires. He had then a habit, as it is called. That is to say, he was indebted to it that he no longer wandered by glancing from side to side and invited upon himself such and such a thing. In summary, we see here that Job wished to declare not only that he had tried to serve God, but that he made such an effort that he had bitten and captured all the passions of his flesh in such a way that it no longer cost him anything to serve God, because he had not the struggles which we have in us because of our frailty, and even because of the corruption which is in our nature. Now let us note that this was not by his own power. He could not have acquired such a perfection by himself, but it was necessary that God should have so reformed him by his Holy Spirit that he was, as it were, separated from the common rank of men. For it is not without cause that David makes this request of God, Lord, turn my eyes in order that they may not behold vanity. Psalm 119.37 If it had been of Job's industry that he protested, there is no doubt that David could as well acquire such a constancy, that he should have conceived no vanity, and that his eyes should not have been seduced or distracted in any manner whatever. Now it is thus that David confesses that he could not have this nor obtain it except by the pure grace of God. It follows then that Job could not make such a covenant by his free will, by saying that reason so dominated in him that he was victorious over all his passions, but he here intends to attribute to God the praise for such a benefit. It is not then to boast and magnify himself as if he had acquired such a benefit, but he recognized that God had so well governed him that he was no longer attracted by evil in his sight. Besides, when Job speaks thus, let us note that on the contrary he attends that, if a man looks at a woman or a girl, and if he should be incited to evil, it is already sin before God. Yes, although the outward act may not be there, although the man may even not try to corrupt a girl, nor to seduce her, although there may not yet be the settled will in him to say, I would like to, Although then a man may not have this wish, but he resists the temptation to which he is incited, yet he does not cease to offend God. This is a point well worthy to be noted. In fact, 
we hear the sentence that our Lord Jesus gives us, that we must not think we shall be acquitted or absolved before God, just because we have abstained from adultery in the body, but he who will have only looked at a woman will be judged an adulterer before God. Indeed, if the look is unchaste. And what is more, as I have already said, when the will will not yet be fixed upon it, already we must confess the fault before God to humble ourselves. The papists will say that if a man consents to evil, that is to say, if he so desireth the evil that he is fully resolved to do evil if the occasion were there, oh, they confess that it is a sin unto condemnation. But if a man has some wicked appetite, provided he does not entirely consent to it, the papists say that it is not a sin. But this is blasphemy. It is said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy understanding, with all thy strength. What is it to say, understanding and strength? God has not limited the love which we owe him only to our hearts and our affections, but he says that our minds and our senses as well must be applied to it, and all our strength, that is to say, all the faculties and powers which are in us by nature. Now if a man can see some evil, although he did not entirely agree with it, and his affection was not fully given to it, I pray you, would he love God with all his understanding? Not at all. He who will have the least part of himself tending to corruption, though in the rest he strives to keep the law, will he love God as he ought? Certainly not, for sin is nothing else than transgression of the law of God. Let us conclude, then, that all the wicked fantasies that we have when we are attracted to evil are so many sins, and that we shall be indebted to God who not only supported us by his infinite goodness, but that he pardons his own. Yet they must recognize these things as sin, and whoever flatters himself only provokes the wrath of God and covers evil to his condemnation. For in the end, hypocrisy will have to be uncovered and revealed to be punished with all the rest. Those, then, who imagine that they are not obligated and that they do not offend God when they are attracted by evil, gain nothing. It is not to amend their walk, for this hypocrisy will have to be punished grievously. So then, let us remember, as I have already said, that although one does not consent to evil, but though we are only, as it were, titillated, though there is some desire and we resist it, it is already a fault and a weakness in us. When we only conceive some evil desire, it is already a sign of the corruption of our nature. And in fact, if evil did not dwell in us, and we had not yet turned away from the uprightness and integrity which God had put in the first man, it is certain that our sight would be much more pure and chaste than it is, and all our senses as hearing, speaking, touching, all these would be as it were pure and clean, there would be no infection in them. And that it may be so, let us weigh well what is said by Moses, that when Satan came to seduce Eve, and consequently her husband, after they have lent him their ears and have been corrupted by the ambition to be like God, it is said that they looked at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and saw that it was desirable in order to acquire knowledge. 
What had they not looked at it? And had not Adam and Eve already seen it? For God had said to them, Do not eat of the fruit which I have forbidden you. For in the hour that you shall eat thereof, I declare to you that you are separated from me, being condemned to death. So behold, Adam and Eve, who have previously contemplated this tree. And why then is it that Moses now imputes it to them for sin? Because they have known it to be desirable. That is to say, they had an evil and perverse appetite when they thought that it was good to eat of it. And where does it come from? It is their heart which was corrupted, and which tainted their eyes more and more, as also when a man will have his sight tainted on account of drinking through his intemperance, the evil must be within, and there must be some burning before the eyes are lost, or else some accident, as when a man will become blind, there will previously be some cataract, or some other such thing, which will take away his sight with the passing of time, so it is with all the wicked looks which are to condemn. For if there were not some evil appetite by which the heart is already infected and corrupted, the eye, as I have said, would be pure and clean of itself, so that we would contemplate the creatures of God without being drawn to something evil. It is so now that we would not know how to open our eyes unless it were to conceive some evil desire. We would not know how to say, That is beautiful, that is good, without immediately offending our God. Is not that a great perversity? So then, let us recognize what the sin is which reigns in us, as in fact it has occupied its possession since Adam transgressed, in such a way that our nature is so corrupted that we would not know how to look at a thing which we could name beautiful and good without our offending God, instead of being invited to love Him as we ought, and to give Him praise for His goodness, and for so many benefits that He does for us here. Instead, then, of glorifying God, and of being incited to love Him and serve Him, we would not know how to say, That is beautiful, that is good, except we were titillated, indeed pushed, either into avarice, or into adultery, or into other voluptuousness. Briefly, all of that which is beautiful under heaven, and that which is good, turns us away from our God, where it ought to lead us to Him. Is not God the source of all beauty and goodness? Now it is true that this wicked appetite does not have dominion, and also ought not to have dominion over the children of God. But I speak of that which is natural on the part of man until God is worked in him. It is true that believers will not be so perverted and will not have their senses so depraved to be always drawn to evil. Yet they will always have some relic of the infection which is from the womb of the mother. That is, they will have points of contact within from which to be incited to evil even though they may hate it and repulse it at first. In fact, as I have said, who is he who does not conceive the fantasy that God does not care for him as soon as we shall endure some evil? And it is a blasphemy, indeed execrable, if we consent to it, and our attention is focused upon it some little while, though it may not be a settled act of the will. So then, we see now that if a man is invited to evil, though he may not consent to it, thus repulse the temptation and fight against it, however he does not cease to offend God. And why not? For it is a transgression of the law, as we have shown. 
Likewise, it must proceed from an evil source, for the eye itself will not be corrupted. It is not there that sin begins to produce itself. Where then, in the mind of man, and in the soul, for in fact evil affection must be hidden within, before the eye tends thus to evil, and is invited to it. And that is why I have said that Job, in protesting that he has abstained from every evil and immodest look, shows us that those who are infected by it cannot excuse themselves before God by saying that there is no fault in them. Thereupon let us learn to be well on our guard, and not to flatter ourselves, as I have already mentioned. I say, to be on our guard, for what difficulty there is, I pray you, to so hold back our eyes, that they may not be tempted by any evil concupiscence or inordinate desire. When we see the goods of this world, that we should not be touched by avarice. When we see the comforts, delicacies, and voluptuousness which are here and there, that we should not be induced to desire that God should give them to us. When we look from side to side, that there should be neither adultery, nor ambition, nor avarice, nor anything which would get under our skin. It is impossible, or else it is not without a great difficulty and beyond all our powers, so that it is almost impossible that we should open our eyes without conceiving some offense against God. Since it is so, let us learn to keep a good watch, for we cannot so perfect ourselves that there would no longer be any fault to find, and that we would not have to have our refuge in the remission of our sins. Let us conclude, then, that we must fight valiantly, seeing that we are so corrupted that we cannot use our senses in any manner whatever, nor apply them to anything, except there would be some relic of our evil corruption displeasing to God. That, then, is what ought to invite us to diligence. And then, in the second place, let us also learn to humble ourselves, seeing that the devil is trying to put us to sleep by hypocrisy, in order that we may not recognize our faults, and that this may only aggravate the evil. Let us then look within ourselves, and after having examined our imperfections, let us groan before God. Alas, Lord, Thou hast done me the grace that I desire to advance myself in Thy service. I take pains, I strive, I resist all my passions, I fight against myself, yet I am not righteous before Thee, Lord. There is much to find fault with. That is how believers, after having worked hard and having exerted themselves beyond all their powers, ought always to retain this affection, in order that they may condemn themselves when there will thus be vice mixed among the good which God will give them to do, and that they may learn to pass condemnation on themselves before Him, and to humble themselves in order to obtain grace. These are, then, the points that we have to note from this passage. Now, though it may be, although we may have fantasies which enter into our brains both evening and morning, and though by that we should perceive that there is an amazing corruption in our nature, yet we must not lose courage, but let us always walk further. Let us pray the good God, that if he has begun to compel us, that he may continue, and that he may add the power of his Holy Spirit.
So we must request it, and we should feel that we have already something worse than our evil affections. Let us put the two together, and let them be so trampled down that they never could get up again. And when the devil comes to prick us, to invite us to evil, let him not succeed against us, but let us always have our senses focused higher. Briefly, let the Spirit of God so rule in our hearts that, though there may be wicked affections, they may be held as it were in check, indeed enchained, and that they may not raise themselves, that it may not be to toss us this way or that way, but that we may always remain firm and may be resolved to say, Our God must govern us, and we must follow His holy will. This, then, is how, in the midst of our wicked fantasies, we must take courage to walk always honorably, knowing that the good God will support us, not that we ought to confess that there are not so many sins, but that they are pardoned for us. And this is a point on which we differ from the papists. The papists say that evil concupiscences are not sins, provided that one resists them. That is blasphemy, as if it were, God must renounce himself by upsetting all his law. This is not a fleeting opinion that only simple and ignorant people will have, but it is a persuasion which captures great doctors in their schools, or rather devilish synagogues. On the contrary, we say that these are so many sins, but they are not imputed to us by God since he erases them through his goodness and gratuitous mercy by our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we believe. And having such a comfort, we ought to exert ourselves so much more, as I have already said. Besides, Job well shows that he knew what this offense is, and that he would have been guilty if he had taken an immodest look. For he adds, What is the portion from God on high? What is the inheritance from the Almighty of the heavens? Now Job here shows that he does not speak of self-improvement before men, and of acquiring a reputation for strength and holiness, as those do who ask only to be prized here below. But he has his eyes fixed on God, and he speaks here as in his presence, and asks him to be witness and judge. And that is also where we must come, for, as has been discussed previously, as long as we wish our lives to be approved by men, we shall be full of lies, subterfuges, and wiles, so that it will cause us to disguise the white and change it into black, and to make vice virtue and vice versa. That is how we shall do it, when we try to be approved by men. And so, whoever will desire to walk in uprightness, and to have the integrity of which Job here speaks, oh, it is certain that he must collect himself, that he must no longer wander here below, saying, Who will find fault with me? No, that must be cut off, and he must summon himself before God, saying, Now, why am I? It is with God that I have to do, when I shall have satisfied all the men of earth. I shall have gained nothing. We must all have our mouths closed, for God is not satisfied by beautiful means, beautiful disguises, appearances, or like things. He looks at the heart, he sounds the thought, and he discovers everything that is hidden in shadows. Since it is so, let us thereby be constrained to walk in integrity and uprightness. 
but on the contrary, we are distracted here and there. We are subject to inventing subterfuges and by beautiful parades to put our best foot forward. And when we can do no better, by covering ourselves with leaves like our father Adam. For this reason, let us know well the lesson which is here shown to all believers. Namely, when we would wish to walk properly, we must not be, as it were, only before men. Our eyes must not be focused only on them, but we must contemplate the heavenly judge. And we must know that it is to him that we have to answer and to render account. So much for one item. Besides, as we have already mentioned, Job here knew that God will not endure a modest looks without punishing them. And why not? For these are so many offenses. Then he adds, iniquity will be cut off, by which he shows that he who will have his eyes given to vanity, though he may not entirely consent to it, yet is condemned a sinner and wicked before God. Let us remember what has been said of the time of Job. For although we do not know whether he lived before the law or not, yet he was before the prophets, as we have declared that he is mentioned as an ancient man. So then, here is Job who was of the time when God had not yet given a full ample doctrine or a light such as has come since. For the prophets have greatly clarified what was obscure in the law. Joe lived before, so there was, as it were, only some little spark. If we consider the doctrine which has been since then, nevertheless, he well knew that he could not be attracted by an evil desire without being guilty before God. And now how guilty we shall be, who have the Son of Righteousness, who shines upon us as in full midday. Behold Jesus Christ with his gospel, who has brought us such great light that we have no excuse. If we say, I do not understand it, it is too high and too deep a thing, how can we? Have we not an ample enough doctrine when the will of God has been fully manifested to us? How then shall we be excused if we do not recognize what Job recognized? And in this is seen what is a vengeance of God, namely, how horrible it is on the papacy when those beasts have dared to deny that man sins when he is thus tempted to evil, and he has points of contact within him, and evil affections which he conceives, provided that he does not entirely consent to them. And Job, who had not costly doctrine, as we have already declared, nevertheless well knew this. And so let us look at ourselves closely, since God has done us a grace and privilege to make his truth much better known to us than it was at that time. Let us be vigilant, and as soon as we shall open our eyes, as we shall experience in ourselves some vanity, some evil affection, let us know, oh, there is evil which is hidden within. We have offended our God, and already our eyes are tainted with it. When the evil appeared outside, when there are sparks, and are they made without fire? We must then learn to condemn ourselves, as, in fact, if it were not for the mercy of God, we would be destroyed by it, for it is a portion of our inheritance which is prepared from on high. It is true that men will be able to justify us, but we must appear before God, who will judge us entirely otherwise. And Job says especially, from on high, from heaven. This word is repeated, but it is not superfluous language. 
and why not, he makes tacitly a comparison between the judgment of God and the opinions which we could acquire toward men. Here, then, are men who could justify us on all accounts, and our orders and poverty would not be recognized. We would be then reputed as it were little angels, whereupon we would suppose that there was nothing to find fault with in us. Now what if we profited? Nothing at all, for here is Job who calls us there on high. Very well. It is true that here below sinners will be able to be absolved, and they will be easily approved by men, for apparently only all virtue is seen, but on high. For there is God who will upset all the vain opinions which will have reigned for a time. And so let us learn that, as often as we are guilty, having been attracted to evil concupiscences, also the salary is prepared for us in heaven, that is to say, from on high, unless a good God spare us and uses his fatherly goodness toward us. This, then, is what we have to remember in order to magnify the goodness of our God, when we see that he does not punish us severely, and also in order to be incited to ask him to pardon all our faults every day. Now, furthermore, it is said, is there not curtailment of iniquity and affliction for those who commit crimes? And does not God regard my ways, and does he not take account of all my steps? Job here expresses more clearly the portion and inheritance of which he had spoken, and it is in order to grieve us more, even to the quick, with the feeling of our sins. It is true that he does not insist upon everything of which it is spoken in the law, and he does not use so many words, yet the Holy Spirit has here given us by his mouth a common instruction. For when one speaks to us of the judgments of God and of the punishments which he sends upon sinners, we are so slow that it hardly moves us. It is necessary, then, that our Lord should wake us up and make us more sensible of how terrible is his wrath, that it is a horrible thing to have it thus against us. This, then, is why Job adds, the declaration which is herein contained, Is there not cutting off for the iniquitous, and will not the wicked be afflicted? What means this cutting off? It is that the wicked deserve to be exterminated, that God should cast them into hell, and destroy them utterly, as a word implies more than salary or inheritance, for men, as I have said, make themselves believe they will escape it with a very light chastisement. As when a criminal will be detained in prison, he knows that he has deserved the gallows, he makes himself believe, perhaps I shall escape with a whip, I shall be banished. So I say, men do not apprehend the wrath of God such as it is. They do not recognize the punishment of which they are worthy, since they do not think of eternal death. We see then how Job, not without cause, after having spoken of the portion which is prepared on high for all the wicked, adds that it is a cutting off and a confounding to cast them into hell. Now by this, let us recognize that the Spirit of God rebukes us for our indifference. If from the first stroke we were attentive to understanding the judgments of God, indeed to feeling our faults, we would have no need that he should thus state the proposition doubly. It would be enough to have warned us in a simple word. 
But the Holy Spirit, after having spoken of the portion that God prepares for all despisers of His law, adds, cutting off, because we are like brutes. And when one simply declares a thing to us, we do not apprehend it. We are preoccupied with such a stupidity that, if God strikes us roughly, we do not feel the blows from his hand. And how then shall we be grieved as it is required by the warnings which he gives us? It is certain that when he will only speak, we shall be neither touched nor cast down in ourselves, seeing that by the blows of his hand we still cannot be sufficiently humbled. And so then, let us note well that here our indifference and stupidity is rebuked. And yet let us be awakened when God invites us so carefully, and let us be better instructed to think on ourselves. It is what we have to observe in this verse. Now, in conclusion, when Job says, Does not God regard my ways, and does not he count all my steps? Let us know well that he applies to himself the doctrine which he had stated in general. For he had said, What salary, or what is a portion from God on high? What is the inheritance from God of the heavens? Job had thus spoken of all. But now he applies this doctrine to his use, and declares to what purpose he has thus spoken. So then, whenever the judgments of God come into our memory, whether men propose them to us or we read of them, let us have the prudence to enter into ourselves, and let each one look at his own person. For the judgments of God must not remain as it were buried without ever speaking of them, but each one must apply them to himself and to his particular use. This, then, is what we have to note when Job, after having discussed a common doctrine, comes by and by to look at his own person. God, says he, sounds and knows my ways. That is to say, since God is judge of all men, no one can escape his hand. God, says he, does he not know all my ways, and does he not count all my steps? So much for the first point. As for the second, let us note also the style which Job uses, that God looks at his ways and his steps, and that he counts them. It is to express that God does not count them only from afar, and only look at what will be apparent here below, but he looks closely to note and to mark all our works. Indeed, and it is not a confused look, his sight is not misleading, but he notes that he counts, that he numbers everything, so that nothing escapes him, he forgets nothing. Now, I pray you, have we not occasion to better recognize our ways and account our steps when we see that everything is present before God? Why is it that men scarcely recognize one one-hundredth of their sins? Indeed, such a man will commit one fault a hundred times a day, and he will think of it scarcely once. What is the cause of this? It is that we do not think that God watches over us, and that we are so before his sight that nothing may be hidden from him, and that he forgets none of all our works and our thoughts. And so, then, let us weigh well the words that are here contained. That is, that God knows our ways, and he counts our steps. That is to say, that the number of them is set down before him that even to the last item all must come to account. That is what those who, by lies and flattery, will have covered their evil doing will again, for all must come to light. What remains then? 
It is that we should think on ourselves more closely than we have been accustomed to doing, and that we should always be on watch in order not to be surprised by the ambushes from which we are assailed from all sides. And seeing that we are subject to falling into so many vices of which our nature is filled, let us examine them well in order to be displeased by them, and to plead guilty of them before God, and that by still groaning our confessions with David, Psalm 19.12, that it is impossible that all our faults should be known to us, and yet let us pray to the good God that, when he will have behold in us the faults and the sins that we ourselves cannot see, it may please him to erase them by his mercy, and that by this means we may have no other assurance of our salvation except that he receives us to mercy in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we have also the washings by which we are purged, namely, the blood which he has shed for our redemption. Now we shall bow in humble reverence before the face of our God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.